why we care about Bitcoin, we call it Bitcoin, it's human rights. Now, when we see that financial institutions use as a weapon against civil society, against opposition, Bitcoin is a human right. And when we see that uh, all crypto asset services providers going to be operating just in the way how traditional financial institutions, we understand that crypto asset services providers, unfortunately, going to be the same weapon for regimes just as uh, traditional banks. Ludmilla and Bota, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you for inviting us. Hi. So Very nice we're, we're going to, yeah. Well, uh, good to see you. And uh, we're going to talk today about defending proof of work, as well as uh, you know Bitcoin and human rights advocacy. So, just for people who don't know you too, can you please just give us a quick intro? Yeah, sure. I'm human rights defender, originally from Ukraine, but I live and work in Brussels. Uh, we work in many countries, defending those who are politically persecuted inside the countries and also those who are persecuted like political refugees, dissidents outside of the countries. And our organization was deprived right to have financial services because of actually this human rights work. So uh, at some point, being in Europe, in the heart of uh, EU, uh, we were deprived right to have me personally deprived the right to have financial services, banking accounts. And during this time, we were explaining regulators what happened with us. We were using Bitcoin. This is how we met with Bitcoin. And this is how we also started to advocate explaining regulators why this is the only actually tool for us once you are under attack of transnational repression. Um, and I'm Bota. I'm a, uh, just like Luda. I'm a human rights defender, and I'm a lawyer. I'm originally from Kazakhstan, but uh, right now I live in Belgium, where I have political asylum because I've been pre- uh, politically uh, persecuted by my home country, Kazakhstan. And we, we've been working together with Luda for uh, I don't know more than ten years, is for sure. And uh, just as what Luda mentioned. I was uh, uh, I was subject to many many politically motivated attacks, and at some point uh, I was de-risked. De-risked it means basically all banks accounts in Belgium were closed for me. And after that, you look at your options, uh, you see what's happening, and this is how we discovered Bitcoin is basically a bank of last resort, and then uh, what. Kind of our de-risking happened in parallel with Luda, with Open Dialogue Foundation. So we started looking around and started looking who else is facing the same problem. We started looking at the root of the problem and we realized that is actually a quite general problem and it's a growing trend that more and more banks uh, they don't want to deal with difficult clients, especially if they're subject to politically motivated smear campaign online. They prefer just get rid of such clients. And uh, we found that it's happening with people around the world, not only in Europe. So that's, uh, that's how we discovered Bitcoin and created um, BTC Coalition. Luda, you can talk a little bit about it. Yeah. Building to Change Coalition, yes. So it's yeah. a coalition, it's actually a coalition of activists, Bitcoiners, um, and all, everyone basically who wants to explain to regulators and, uh, and legislators why we use Bitcoin, peer-to-peer transactions, um, you know, uh, even mixers 
for our privacy to defend uh, our activists in authoritarian states against abuse of uh, anti-money laundering counter-terrorism regulation. It's one thing. Also, we trying to do all possible efforts and explain the regulators of G7 countries why financial action task forces has to be more open, more transparent institution because it shapes all of our reality. And this is something what we have to keep in mind. We shouldn't abandon our right uh, to participate in legislative process which affects our lives um, uh, directly. So this is also our work and also we defend proof of work because of the current uh, ongoing attack in the European Union. Unfortunately, there is very wrong perception and narratives against proof of work. And this is what we want specifically um, underline and, and bring attention of uh, Bitcoiners uh, from different countries. We just need your support to defend proof of work. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's talk about that. So if you could spell out for us, just for people, what is the current threat? Just at a very high level, in simple terms, what is the current threat from the EU uh, the bureaucrats and the regulators and the FATF? Yeah, there are three lines of attack, right, on, on Bitcoin and proof of work. One is something that Ludmila already mentioned. This is, comes from kind of a higher level, from the recommendations of Financial Action Task Force, and then trickles down to jurisdictions and came to the European Commission. And this is attack on uh, Bitcoin as an instrument for money laundering and financing of terrorism. This is one line of attack. Um, another two lines of attack, this is very related more to the issues of energy security in the EU and um, environmental and sustainability goals of the EU. And uh, th- there is a big problem. The European Commission perceives Bitcoin and proof of work, uh, like specifically proof of work, as an uh, energy-wasted mechanism. And this is specifically labeling uh, proof of work as such in its um, action plan to digitalize uh, energy sector of the EU. And this is very important because this action plan is being implemented by the European Commission right now and as a European institution. And um, it, it, uh, European Commission also labels Bitcoin as uh, outdated, oh no, proof of work is an outdated consensus mechanism that is harmful to environment. And, uh, European Commission now in the process of developing sustainability labels for digital assets. And so, as you can imagine, with the language as such, with the perception that it's energy-based mechanism, especially, uh, European Commission always compares, um, proof of work, uh, with proof of stake. And they consider proof of stake, Ethereum's proof of stake, they specifically uh, kind of spell it out in the documents of the EU as a golden standard for the uh, blockchain ecosystem. And, uh, of course, uh, proof of work for them, it's uh, um, energy-wasted mechanism. And we consider this, uh, this is very serious attacks because we see how they are being developed right now in the regulations uh, of the European Union. And then you mentioned, the th- what's the third line of attack you were mentioning there? So, uh, first, it's uh, AML. Uh, second is, uh, is energy threat and a third is an, is environmentally harmful mechanism. That's kind of a nutshell. But we can talk about it for hours, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, of course, of course. We just, I'm just trying to spell out at a high level what the, 
concerns are and then we can sort of dig further into those now there will be the question i'm just going to ask the question i don't necessarily agree with this view but there'll be some people who say hey as libertarians or cypherpunks why bother engaging with these people at all quote-unquote cypherpunks write code what would you say to that we have to understand that as human defenders, uh, we kind of uh, have to ask uh, for European and US other democratic uh, politicians for support. So every time we come to, uh, to them and ask them, listen, guys, you need to help us according to the international human rights uh, obligations, support these and, the, uh, and, and those political prisoners, politically persecuted people. And if in general narrative, there is perception uh, that we use as human defenders, mechanism assumed uh, in regulation, included in regulation uh, with label that is instrument for money laundering, terrorism, that is in, uh, very bad for environment. It's make weaker our position as human defenders who is always under attack, both by authoritarian regime, even if we live in uh, democratic countries, but also not every democratic government will be able and, and want to, to support us. This is the first thing. Second thing, we as NGO uh, survive and actually exist thanks to private donation. If there is narrative, if there is perception in general in society, and also, unfortunately, in, in inclusion in uh, regulation that uh, Bitcoin Bitcoin, again, environmentally bad, uh, used by criminal terrorists. Who is going to support us with donations through this mechanism? And right now, for us, it's a key instrument. You cannot use traditional financial instruments in authoritarian states. So this is the reason why we defend it in front of regulators. We cannot wait 50 years. We cannot wait when market will win. We need to defend it right now because for us, it means to support people who are it's important for us who are our activists, who are family members in, uh, um, in many authoritarian states or emergency territories, for example, like in Ukraine. I cannot allow that instrument which helps to save so many of my friends and, and relatives, um, you know, especially during first hours of uh, Russian full invasion to, to Ukraine. We actually were able to transact and save people's lives the second day of the war. We were delivering hundreds of bulletproof vests, helmets, medical equipments. We would not be able to do so with normal uh, transactions of a banking system. So we cannot, not morally, not uh, objectively, allow regulators uh, to to label it. And we cannot just look at the you know uh, cyberpunk. We respect their position, but our situation that we need this tool to be defended and to be legally used, not in gray zone right now. Yeah, we look at Bitcoin not as an investment instrument. We are not looking as uh, something that we put our money in and wait for a long time. We are looking at it as a payment instrument. We would like to promote use of Bitcoin in um, our communities around the world in, in, in authoritarian countries where we use Bitcoin, for example, to deliver humanitarian aid, as Luda mentioned, or to raise financing for families of political prisoners. And we won't be able to do so if it's uh, banned in in the EU. In e- and don't forget, the EU is a 27 countries, 27 key no- countries. And at the same time, European Commission uh, mentioned that it should tackle the problem with uh, kind of wasteful energy consumption by Bitcoin miners on the globally impactful way. 
this is their language I quote, like globally impactful way. It means that they will be pushing the, uh, other countries to adopt similar requirements, similar laboring. It's something that will be spread around. It will be not contained only within the boundaries of the EU. And yeah, I mean, as uh, probably my listeners will know, I'm a libertarian. Of course, I'm anti the, the state and these regulators, but I also see a role for trying to push back in ways that we can do this. Now, the question, the other question people might have is, can these people be reasoned with? Can we actually do something here? What's the pathway to actually try to do something here? So, yeah, of course, we can and we should. I mean, we have privilege as people who reside in uh, democratic countries or who are citizens of democratic countries to use your voters' right, to use your contacts for your politicians and regulators to demand them actually to respect your recommendations. How you can do it? You can go together like we've done, for example, the last two years when we invite, for example, Obin Voss or uh, Mark Morton and other Bitcoiners to go with us, human defenders plus Bitcoiners, and we educate over 200 of uh, members of European Parliament, national parliaments, regulators, European commissions, high level. Uh, we met also with representative of financial action task forces with clear recommendations and uh, actually argumentations why we cannot use, for example, traditional financial instruments in authoritarian states, why peer-to-peer transactions plays key role for us to fundraise, to actually provide support for families of uh, political prisoners as the only payment instrument and fundraising instrument. And uh, why, for example, crypto asset services providers and f- traditional financial instru- instruments like banking system, uh, you know, PayPal, just unsafe for us, even if we live in democratic countries. And my case, Bota case, some other uh, our members from Turkey, uh, Palestine and other countries, they show clearly our banking data can be weaponized. And when you speak with these kind of languages, what you achieve? First of all, we have clear recommendations, for example, for, of Organization for Cooperation and Security in Europe, which uh, is umbrella for 57 member states, including North America, so it's US and Canada, European countries, and also Asian countries, that they have to reflect in relevant relega- regulation how we basically deprive the right to have financial services because of abuse of anti-money loaning and counter-terrorism regulation and how we use Bitcoin and stable coins uh, for humanitarian aid and for human rights. This is something what we achieved. We also achieved in European Union, for example, uh, uh, acknowledgement that crypto assets used as a payment instrument, as fundraising instrument. For example, in US, it's commodity. So it, there is no this kind of acknowledgement. Again, we were able to get it because we were educating uh, regulators and, and legislators, and they were able to ask us on private meetings, for example, what is Bitcoin? Of course, no one from politicians don't want to ask this kind of question publicly. But we make it comfortable, this dialogue, when they can ask questions and we can ask, uh, and, and we can ask them questions. So we, we try to build these bridges, uh, whenever you like it or not, but we have positive effects and we actually want to defend uh, Bitcoin as a, uh, our technology. Yeah, I would like to add something. Um, you know, there are uh, two types of uh, people. Uh, in, in politics, this is uh, some, you know, uh, politicians, bureaucrats, 
not elected bureaucrats, and it, this is usually those who work for the regulator, right, uh, for European Commission, for executive bodies. And then you have uh, politicians that were elected directly by people. These are members of parliaments, of parliaments of local parliaments of the member states and the European Parliament. And um, it's very easier to approach, to meet those who are uh, members of the parliaments, because they're politicians, they're used to talking to their constituencies, to their voters, um, and educate them about uh, use of Bitcoin. Because what we see is uh, basically they don't know much about it. They just, uh, the information they get, it's usually, uh, you know, from Bloomberg, from newspapers, uh, from somebody mentioned something, and from the European Commission. With the European Commission, it's a little bit tricky because they are bureaucrats, they have their agenda, they, there are some, uh, you know, high level, uh, industry interests involved. So we have to meet with them anyway and explain our position because very often when we come to those meetings, they get surprised. They say, Oh, we didn't know that you exist. We didn't know that Bitcoin can be used in the ways that you're just describing. So we educate in, in one way. On another way, in the end of the day, the regulations is ad, are adopted by the parliaments. Positions really have to be adopted by the parliament. So it's very important to work with them, educate them, and then they will ask uncomfortable questions. They will, uh, the commission and the regulators, and they will question their position. And this is how you work. And this are democratic tools that we're trying to have in our countries. We kind of put in jeopardy our lives and a lot of people sitting in jail to have these instruments. And here in the Western democracies, people just neglect them very often. And, and you know, we consider it's very sad. We should use these mechanisms. So let's walk through some of the th- some of these threats in a little more detail now so as you mentioned i guess we can maybe at a high level say there's the kind of there's the threat at the mining side at the proof of work side and then there's also the threat at the let's say self custody aml financial transactions regulation side so let's start with the mining side what is the main regulation that's you know being debated here is it mica or is it some other regulation and what what if you could expand on a little bit of the exact threat that uh, the EU is facing. Yeah. MICA market and crypto assets regulations has been already adopted by the European uh, Union, right? So it just in the process of of kind of getting into force. It will get into force uh, uh, this year in 2024. But um, th- there was a discussion during the, its adoption about banning of proof of work. And we're going back to uh, 2022 when it was actively debated at the European Parliament. And sometime in the March of 2022, there was a consensus that there will be no banning. Uh, of proof of work and everyone exhale. Everyone saw that that's it. The issue is done. Victory. Like we can move on and forget about those uh, stupid regulations. But at the same time, then as time passed by in October 2022, European Commission already, when it, uh, it was adopting its action plan on energy security, they put this language, you know, that action plan was adopted as a kind of response to this energy crisis in the EU after the full invasion 
by Russia of Ukraine. Uh, so they they needed to justify their failed policies, and one of the scapegoats became a proof of work, right? And and as uh, uh, energy like something that jeopardizes energy security in the EU, and so this is the action plan is adopted, and now you know uh, it's it's kind of being implemented through different mechanisms. And Luda, you probably should talk a little bit. Yes, about so, it. yes, exactly. A part of uh, what European Commission is doing, there was, uh, of course, European Commission tender, which was al- already defined very negative um, uh, indicators uh, against proof of work. So it was specifically focused on negative uh, externalities of proof of work. So entire study cost uh, 800,000 uh, of euros focus to prove why proof of work is bad, to put it simply. Then we have, of course, post-MICA reports uh, and discussions in a European Parliament, which also identify the same um, problems, uh, let's say. So from one side, they attack proof of work, the same language like European Central Bank and European Commission. And uh, also we see the same language repeated was in European Security and Markets uh, uh, Authority. So this is so-called ESMA, um, which is a door implementing uh, decisions by European Parliament and European Commission demands. So, uh, and this is also an institution where we submitted uh, voices of uh, both proof of work um, miners uh, and also human rights activists and those who use Bitcoin, for example, to defend the results of votes uh, in Guatemala, uh, like Rafa Cordon, um, developer of Simple Proof. So we collected all of these testimonies and tried to explain all institutions, um, basically the entire EU bubble, why they are wrong. But they not, unfortunately, alone taking this decision. I can understand you, <laughs> Stefan, that you don't like <laughs> EU bureaucrats because they quite numerous and imagine you have to go down like for example also you have to go to national level or national parliaments key country expert on uh, this regard because European Parliament European Commission they all go into elections so we have really short window of opportunity where we can uh, implement um, kind of our strategy and impact uh, on opinion and narratives, changes narratives once again like we've done it during uh, MICA drafting debate so we have to repeat the same and do it both on EU level like um, Brussels level but also go to specific countries to educate these uh, key parliaments like Germany, Austria, Spain Italy, uh, Belgium because Belgium now uh, president of um, uh, around president of the European Union. And we need to explain the key members of these parliaments why actually proof of work is beneficial for society, how it's empowers society, how it's actually protect rule of law. And what's happened right now, today in Guatemala, it's clear example how proof of work uh, and uh, actually Bitcoin, blockchain can help to defend democracies, not just like be payment instrument, but actually also uh, protect uh, democracies. So I think it's huge victory for everyone who contributed for uh, making this uh, possible. And we need changes narrative. We live in a world of narratives and perceptions. Perceptions are unfortunately reality. So we have to shape it and took it our responsibility for, for all of this, uh, um, what's happening around us and specifically how Bitcoins find, uh, defined in, uh, uh, in the eyes of uh, both societies, but also regulators and legislators. 
Back to the show in a moment. Nomad Capitalist Live has just announced their lineup, and it's awesome. They're going to have capitalists around the world who are interested and share your views in things like getting the government off your back, getting lower taxes, who share your views about mobility and going anywhere and having options. I was there last year as a speaker. It's a great audience, very high-level and freedom-minded audience, and really, you can make some great connections uh, that you can just make in person that's hard to do online. So, some of the people who will be speaking at Nomad Capitalist Live, they have Tony Fernandez, CEO of Air Asia, Safedean Amus. If you're in the Bitcoin world, you know who Safedean is. He'll be there. Peter St. Ange, many of you know him. Also, Nigel Farage, Naomi Brockwell, and many more, as well as, of course, Andrew Henderson and his team. They'll be sharing all kinds of insights into things like second citizenship, structuring your affairs, getting residence um, permits and things like this in different countries, as well as how to do it in a strategic way. So for those of you who are interested, make sure you go and sign up for the wait list over at nomadcapitalist.com slash live. So the dates are September 25th to 28th. The event will be in KL, Malaysia. That's nomadcapitalist.com slash live. The lead sponsor of this show is Swan.com. You can use Swan.com or the Swan Bitcoin apps available on your smartphone to buy Bitcoin and also to learn about Bitcoin. Swan is a leading Bitcoin-only financial services brand. Swan makes it easy for you to buy Bitcoin. You can wire in or ACH in your dirty fiat and then convert that into Bitcoin. Now, you can do either a lump sum or a smash buy or set up an automated recurring Bitcoin purchase plan. Now, many people do one and then the other, right? They might start with a lump sum and then proceed on to a regular SAT stacking plan. And with Swan, you can withdraw for free. Swan makes withdrawals free. Swan wants you to self-custody your coins into your own Bitcoin wallet. Now, remember, Swan has a bunch of different service lines. If you are a high net worth investor or a family office or a business check out Swan Private. This is for people who are buying more than $100,000 of Bitcoin. And with Swan Private, you'll have an individual concierge, a person you can call and get additional guidance. They can help you with things like tax loss harvesting, giving you support for corporate or retirement accounts or trust accounts. Swan Private can help you there. So if you want to get started stacking with Swan, go to swan.com slash Levera and you can get $10 of Bitcoin dropped into your account when you start stacking with Swan. And now... Back to the show. And as I was uh, looking through some of your documents, I noticed one of the threats is also that they, some of the regulators and bureaucrats, are trying to use this ESG uh, narrative to try to discourage proof of work exposure from an investment perspective, that they might try to influence, let's say, banks and financial institutions to yes. say, don't lend to somebody who's doing Bitcoin proof of work mining this kind of thing. So can you spell out a little bit around what the threat is there? What would that mean if somebody is trying to do Bitcoin mining in the EU? Uh, this is exactly what you said. You know, it's um, that they try to create a mechanism uh, that will discourage investors to invest into Bitcoin. And, uh, you, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of sounds strange if you live in a, you know, Bitcoin bubble, let's say, because Luda mentioned the EU bubble, that in Bitcoin bubble, you know about KPMG uh, report, you know about updated uh, version of uh, Cambridge consumption in the energy index. Uh, you, you hear how, uh, institutional, large institutional investment change their opinion about Bitcoin. But this is happening in parallel reality. What's happening in Brussels 
in in the in, in so-called EU bubble. Uh, this is they live uh, in the world where Ethereum's proof of stake is a golden mac uh, golden standard, and um, where uh, proof of work is something that uh, should be discouraged. And this is the labeling. This is uh, the standards methodology to calculate uh, sustainability impact that uh, European con uh, Commission is now developing. And considering that that all this negative perception that European Commission has is basically what they're going to do. They're going to give very low sustainability um, index to proof of work. This is, they basically gonna end up saying that yes, we prove that, uh, proof of work is bad for the environment. And that's it with this ESG imperative. And right now there is a pressure on the banks from the European Central Bank, uh, to put this, um, you know, uh, uh, green deal, uh, kind of objectives of the European Union. Uh, the banks going to land, uh, taking into consideration uh, ESG criteria, uh, so they will definitely uh, uh, look at uh, you know mining and if it's labeled bad in terms of ESG, then it's not going to be very appealing to uh, asset to invest. This is how it works. Yeah, but what, what actually we are quite worried that it's discriminative approach. We also mentioned it in our submission uh, to ESMA um, that we don't think it's a great idea to grant basically European Central Bank, which issued specifically very negative attacking uh, against proof of work reports, that actually European Central Bank is going to have a uh, specific power to include risk linked to climate change and, you know, actually define what crypto assets is uh, worth to investment and what not. We think that it's clear competition. Uh, in, I mean, it's two industries which compete. So how this uh, European Central Bank as a, one of the most competitive uh, uh, actors in this field can decide what should happen with uh, other industry. This is something what is has to be uh, absolutely discussed uh, on a you know, level that, for example, European Central Bank representative, crypto asset services representative, Bitcoiners, civil society, uh, members of the parliament, members of European Commission. We have to sit on one table and actually discuss all of our arguments, why we think it should be or shouldn't be. And I think we need to work on our strong argument why it's actually discriminative policy and it shouldn't be happen. Because if it's just allowed to be happen like like now, it's already discussed, it's already developed, it's developed not the first year, it's actually at the uh, stage of um, announcing and then adopting. It's, it's going to be like this. So why we should allow European Central Bank define more do you have right to uh, buy Bitcoin, to invest Bitcoin or not? I think it just shouldn't happen. Right. And I guess one other argument to lay in, or at least one thing that could happen here is if we think about you know, MicroStrategy or some large company buying Bitcoin and holding Bitcoin, that might be harder for, let's say, an EU company because if ESMA, this European Securities and Markets Authority, says, oh, no, proof of work is bad, you're not allowed to do this kind of thing, then maybe it becomes harder for Bitcoin adoption even at that level also. So I think there's also 
an argument to be made yes. around that. But they want to give European Central Bank even to define and not even to ESMA, to European Central Bank. So the institution which is right. directly initiate attacks against proof of work in Bitcoin is going to define should you be able to invest or not, you know, in Bitcoin on crypto asset services yeah, providers. And uh, this uh, is projects, a clear conflict know? of interest. A clear conflict of yes. interest, and right. un- unless got their own we CBDC say products coming out, unless we say something, um, you know, nothing will change. This is the issue. But uh, you know, we should stay optimistic, and we, we should always remember, um, even if we have a little bit of time, you know, because their their plans uh, they are set for 2025, kind of as a kind of key date is one of the uh, key dates. But uh, we still have time and we really need to unite and start working together, try to uh, convince both regulators and the politicians that there are issues, there are problems. Because if we are quiet, then it's easy to say, oh, this is the government, it's always against us, they're always accepting these stupid policies. But, you know, you never defended your position, you never even articulated your position. How are they supposed to know? Are the industries working very hard day and night to make sure that their positions are in front of uh, the regulator? And on this issue, what can, if there are listeners now who want to help out on this particular proof of work issue, what are you looking for? Are you looking for testimonials? Are you looking for help in some kind of way? What, what is, what is the ask? On the website of Open Dialogue Foundation, you can find a BTC campaign where we published also our ESMA submission. So this is an example, how we want to shape your basic experience into understandable for regulators and legislators um, format so they understand your first-hand information, how your business operates, how you as a miner operate, what you giving local uh, communities, um, you know, benefits, how civil society benefits from it, and how actually environment benefits from it. These are three aspects. We call them per- positive externalities, positive indicators. Uh, we also mention in our submission that uh, European institutions should not only focus on negative aspects of proof of work, but actually they have have to include positive indicators and especially social impact indicators because if you remember that most of the countries in this world are authoritarian and people deprive the right to have financial services then you understand the social impact of Bitcoin specifically where it's the only instrument uh, to, to operate quite oftenly if, if we speak about those who are under political repression so this is something we have to take into account and this is our strongest argument and we need to come together give these testimonies, run this campaign, educate over 200 next uh, uh, members of uh, parliaments, key people from the uh, regulators, EU regulators, and defend proof of work. This is what we need to do in the current uh, situation, the next six months, uh, when this perception and narratives is shaping also in the reports of uh, EU bubble institutions. Yeah, just so listeners, make sure you check in the description. I'll put the link, but it's odfoundation.eu. There's a section around defend PAL submission to ESMA. So I'll put the link there in the show notes. Bertak, go on. 
Yeah. So uh, we really looking for miners who use renewable energy for mining, right? Especially if we can find those in the EU, that will be absolutely brilliant for us. And if we can bring them to the politicians and demonstrate how Bitcoin mining can actually facilitate adoption of renewables, how it stabilizes the grid, things that have been discussed in the U.S. for years, right? And uh, people on the Hill know about it. But nobody here in Brussels knows about it, and we really need to bring those people uh, to the parliament, to the European Parliament. And we also need people from the uh, from the academia. Yeah, sorry, we would like to have. Yeah. Uh, of course, it would be wonderful to have proper reports. It would be wonderful to have proper studies uh, on Bitcoin mining, uh, not biased, preferably peer reviewed if it's possible. And uh, to kind of back up the position that Bitcoin community has, that would make our lives so much easier. Yeah, right. and, we're and super I just great. want to point out as well that there's a, a lot of uh, a lot of misinformation has gone on in the mainstream press, you know, in years gone by about proof of work. Right? You see these these ridiculous because people will take some di- ridiculous statistic that's you know ex- exaggerated or just not correct from Digiconomist or someone like that. And then extrapolate it in a way that it doesn't actually work to extrapolate. And then say, oh, look how much energy Bitcoin mining is using. Or look how much whatever water is being used or something or other uh, in a way that just doesn't work. And if you look through some of the arguments, really, it, it actually does not. And there are people out there doing the work um, to try and debunk some of these yes. arguments. But it takes time and work. And so I think that's that's what we're trying to get at here as well. And people can see that as well if they look in that particular link. Um, some of that is quite clear. And, and I think those of us who are deeper into the Bitcoin world, we sort of know this stuff already, but there are people who are outside this world who have very little concept of these things, and they just hear Bitcoin bad, right, in their mind. Yeah, you should never assume okay. that somebody knows the sa- has the same information as you. So you uh, like like we need to go to the politicians. We need to understand. If you complain about their stupid policies, you, you should think, why they're stupid? Maybe they have agenda, it's one thing, and we can deal with that as well. Uh, Or uh, maybe they just don't know. Maybe they just don't know and they've been manipulated by the media, by other interest groups, and they adopt the decisions that they adopt. Yeah, and I want to thank there specifically to Troy Cross, Daniel Button, Eric Hersman, Mark Morton, Bert Groot, Kristaps Skitius, and Brains Mining because they actually part of our submission, they part of our campaign to support. We need more this kind of first-hand information. So whenever politicians or regulators ask us, okay, you get it just from somewhere you know, websites or no, we have actually first hand information. And this is the value, value of first hand testimony. This is so important that Bitcoin miners actually first hand information provide and participate in this kind of meetings, submissions and advocacy campaigns. So guys, we need you <laughs> no matter where you are, because you is going to produce their crazy recommendation global with a global approach. So we also have to produce our submissions and testimonies from with a global approach so whenever you are you do good for communities uh, you know mining bitcoin please share with us your experience great okay so that's let's let's call that the the power section or proof of work (laughs) section let's now talk about the other aspect of this where we've got let's say the aml self-custody fatf 
aspect of this. So, uh, can can you spell out for us what are some of the main threats here? What's the main regulation at you know that's at play here? So we need to remember that all of these uh, attacks for. Um Basically, Bitcoin and first of all, peer-to-peer transactions, they unfortunately come in uh, from uh, fi- financial action task forces. And where they start? They start from a communique issued by G7 countries. And have we, we have to look into May uh, 2023, where the main messages were that uh, peer-to-peer transaction, crypto assets transactions can be perceived as a threat to financial and, uh, and uh, integrity and security. And our main goal, um, I mean, we, we took it very seriously. And afterwards, we see that main recommendation of financial action task forces, they're repeating it. Then we went to um, post-MICA reports of European Parliament and see the same, unfortunately, messages that the next step, uh, what it has to be regulated and uh, what kind of approach has to be taken, that uh, self-hosted wallets and peer-to-peer transactions perceived exactly as just Seven countries said a threat to financial integrity and um, uh, stability and security. So we should not allow uh, easily. Uh, I mean, simply to, to to happen so because for us, self-hosted wallets. It's the only instrument how we can operate fundraising or keeping our money safe uh, from the um, dictators. Of course, there are also a lot of difficulties, especially right now with the cost of transactions and speed of transactions with Bitcoin. But anyways, in case of financial institutions, you would never receive this money. They will be immediately uh, simply... Uh, you know, this information weaponized against you, arrested. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And for example, I want to show my one example. Uh, When I'm I'm quite known activist. Uh, I have support, uh, political support because of uh, attack of at least three several authoritarian regime. I also got protection in European countries like European Parliament, Interparliamentary Assembly of Council of Europe, Organization of Security and Cooperation Europe, Bundestag, French Parliament, Belgian Parliament, and many others, they, they su- supported me. But at the end of the day, when Kazakhstan, uh, Poland during uh, Kaczynski time or Moldova during Plachetnik time, they cooperated in order to get me out or block me. They used my banking data and prosecuted everyone who was donating me through traditional financial institutions, those who received our donations. Some of people were even sentenced in Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan just for cooperating with us. And, uh, for example, all of our donors and recipients of our volunteers, our even cleaning lady, all of them were under attack and interrogation just because these regimes were able to get my banking data. But even worse situation was in case of Bota. If you can explain what's happened with your brother and also with you. Yeah, in, in my case, my banking data in, uh, in Belgium was seized by Kazakhstan as well. And uh, banking, what is banking? Banking, banking uh, data is a roadmap to your life, right? You, they can see everything about you. They can see your connections. They, they know where you go. They know who you basically dealing with. And then uh, it makes you very vulnerable. And I was already kind of a uh, subject to a kidnapping France on the territory of Belgium. Three people were arrested by Belgium federal police and sentenced for that here in Belgium. But Kazakhstan goes and gets my banking data and then weaponizes it and attacks my family in Kazakhstan. And I had my brother, my older brother, arrested in Kazakhstan and tortured and it took two years for us to actually to have him released 
because they took him as a hostage, trying to force me to go back to Kazakhstan uh, from Belgium. And um, it's actually not happening, unfortunately, um, to me, but it happens like in, in countries like Kazakhstan, and it ha- happens in Russia and Belarus and in many, many other countries around the world. And like, for example, in, in Belarus, uh, you know, a lot of activists outside of country and people who left Lukashenko regime, they're raising financing and trying to help victims of torture and political prisoners in Belarus. And uh, at the beginning, they were just transferring money through the banking system. And then Lukashenko regime just would simply um, arrest those funds. And then people, the recipients of those funds, they would be charged with uh, participation in terrorist activities. And those who transfer money, they are uh, 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 charged with financing of terrorism activities. And uh, so that makes impossible to help civil society in the country. So that's why activists started using peer-to-peer transactions. But it, it, it's uh, a bit strange to see that European Union wants to follow the steps of Belarus, where right now they're working and they're already uh, developing the regulations to ban peer-to-peer transactions. And uh, so Belarus is going to ban it, and then European Union is a bit ridiculous, but you see EU is going to do it under this pretext that this is something to protect financial stability and to fight anti-money laundering regulations and terrorist financing. But in countries like ours, we all labeled as terrorists and extremists. And money launderers. Threat to so national security, this, money launderers. The, yeah. yeah, and threat to national security. So, so this is all comes from, uh, financial action task force recommendations. But then, when they're being implemented, and especially implemented in the systems where you don't have independent judiciary, where you don't have independent legislation, um, branch, legislative branch, they basically used as an instrument to destroy civil society, to destroy NGOs and, and opposition. And unfortunately, this is something that can happen anywhere around the world. If you have this mechanism implemented, this is a danger to democracy as well. Because why peer-to-peer transactions uh, should be banned? This is something you write to financial privacy. It's similar to cash transactions. But we see right now this attack on cash, and we see attacks on uh, P2P transactions. So this is something that we really need to defend. People don't defend cash. For some reason, you know, it's, it's just convenient, especially young people. They don't care about cash already. They give up that right so easily. And right now we see if we don't say anything, we will give up that right to have P2P transactions, thinking that we can do it elsewhere in some kind of uh, or in a gray zone. But, you know, people like us, we need to have uh, an app readily available in App Store, right? If a wallet is banned, how are we going to get access to that? We are not cyberpunks. Then it means that we will be excluded uh, from basically a Bitcoin world, that's it. So there was a lot there. So let me just try to, let's say, summarize some of the key arguments just to make sure everybody's following along. So... What we're talking about here is essentially AML and counterterrorism financing regulations. Now, obviously, now personally, I'd rather abolish the lot, abolish FATF, abolish AML, but they do exist. And now some of the consequences of these laws are that 
banks and financial institutions are required to collect and store a lot of information on your transactions. That allows, uh, you know, in, uh, in the European context or even in a global context, what we're seeing is this kind of transnational legal assistance frameworks where maybe one country is allowed to request from somebody else, hey, I want that data. And if Stefan or if Luda or if Bota has been doing unapproved political things, uh, then that can have a chilling effect on you know, uh, pro-freedom advocacy because now you're worried about every time you tap your credit card, hey, who, who else is going to get this data? Not just me and my bank and the credit card company, but this other hostile government potentially um, could be uh, getting that information. And then the other angle you're pointing out as well, and which is also in the paper, so people check out in the links, so it's odfoundation.eu and you can see, can the EU's anti-money laundering reform help dictators, right? So that's the link in the show notes. But um, the other one there is the de-risking aspect, right? Because what's happening, and I believe, Bota, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, this happened to you. So de-risking has become this term that uh, we're hearing in financial services where maybe there are certain customers who are maybe not that profitable for a bank, and they would rather just get rid of you. And they can just use the AML laws to just sort of, well, hey, you know what? This person is working for some kind of not-for-profit organization that's high risk in our AML tables. We're just going to evict that customer. Off you go. We're not going to bank you. And so, you know, people were talking about this even recently with Nigel Farage. I think, you know, last year there was a big, you know... Uh, big uh, thing about this but essentially this de-risking is happening out there to people and so what I think a lot of people and this is probably something where we as the Bitcoin advocates can do something here is try to help change this perception right so the perception is oh AML laws are not strong enough. We need stronger AML, right? And so what does that mean in practice? It means, yeah, right? That's what they think, right? They think, oh, we need stronger AML laws to stop the terrorists and the criminals, and in practice, what's happening is actually a lot of people are getting financially excluded. Exactly. This is what we have to say. And this is, we need more and more voices. And this is exactly what we've done, for example, a meeting in Bonn with uh, representative financial action task forces. This is exactly what we're doing, explaining German regulators, uh, one of the most strongest also financial action task forces representative. We did also a submission as a civil society coalition and as a victims of so-called, uh, you know, false positives. We are not false positives. It's our lives. We were directly affected of abuse of anti-money laundering counter-terrorism regulations. So they cannot say there's something abstract. We, life example, when we talk to them that, listen, we are from all over the globe. Uh, we from Russia, we from Belarus, we from Kazakhstan, Palestine. I'm living in Brussels. I'm originally from Ukraine. And all of us, like um, a lot of people from other countries, Turkey, uh, you know, African countries, all of us, we are victims of transnational repression. We deprive right to have financial services as immigrants, as refugees, as NGOs. And this is the result of, unfortunately, stronger and stronger anti-money loan regulation. We understand that it needs to be kind of provision to fight against uh, organized criminal groups. But looking to the results, the results right now, if we don't fix it, we, we became a subject of this attack. It became a weapon, very easy and effective weapon for dictators, which can easily get all of our data without any remedies. So till nowadays, there is no remedies how to protect your banking data or your crypto asset services data. 
So if someone wants to take your business, if you're not activist, if you're just successful business person and some of your competitors want to basically destroy your business, it's enough for him to know how actually these IML rules operate to organize smear campaign against you, uh, or just to order you to place in some database, which bought by financial institutions, you know, and, and, and that's it. That's it. End of your business. Yeah. You will be lost to your yeah. banking services. Back to the show in a moment. Mempool.space is the leading Bitcoin and blockchain visualizer. You can use Mempool.space to search transactions. So if you sent a Bitcoin transaction, you can see there is a TXID. That's the transaction ID. You can go and paste that in at Mempool.space and you can search that transaction. You can see all kinds of information, whether that transaction had RBF signaled on or off or various other bits and pieces of information like whether it looks like it belongs to a lightning channel. So there's all sorts of information that you can get there as well as, of course, using the mempool.space front page where you can target the fee for your transaction. I use it all the time when I'm about to send a Bitcoin transaction and I like to just keep an eye on what's going on in the mempool. And of course, they've got a transaction accelerator program which is coming up which will help you if you're in a pickle and you need to get a transaction accelerated. You can go to mempool.space slash accelerator to sign up for the waitlist for the mempool accelerator. And finally, this show is also brought to you by CoinKite.com, the best Bitcoin security hardware out there. I use the cold card as part of various setups of my own. I really like the cold card because it has PSBT support. It's very reliable. It has two secure elements. You can use it either plugged in or with micro SD card. You can even use it with NFC if you wish. The cold card is a very... Uh, versatile device that you can use in a range of different configurations whether that's you're a beginner and you just want a standard single signature 12 words hardware wallet or whether you want to use passphrases or use cdex or or use multi-sig there's just so many options and it's really not that hard a lot of people overrate the difficulty of using a cold card it's not that bad just order a cold card get a USB-C cable, plug it into your computer, use it with Sparrow Wallet, and you, you're, you'll be off, follow, off and away just following the instructions there. Don't forget, they also have a range of accessories, things like your metal seed backup plates, the uh, block clock, other accessories are there over at coinkite.com. Use code Levera for a discount on your cold cards. And now, back to the show. Right. And one point I think I just wanted to highlight that. So as you mentioned, this smear campaign, just to kind of spell it out, and you spell this out very well in the uh, submission here, but this smear campaign idea, right? If, if somebody doesn't like you and if they can get negative press shared about you, that could cause your existing bank to exactly. quote-unquote de-risk you, right? Because now, the, because what's happening, and so again, some of the context for listeners who don't know, Right. And sometimes it's not even the quote unquote fault of the bank teller who you're talking with. It's actually some automated system that's going in the background searching you or the company name for some kind of negative press. And if negative press comes up, oh, boom, now there's a flag. Now maybe some compliance analyst in the compliance department of the bank has to review your account and then now they say hey luda is associated with this particular thing or stefan is associated with this thing or Boto is associated with this thing boom cut their account because we're just going to de-risk them and so there's some of this stuff that's happening at an automated system level and some of that has been driven at you know if you if you trace it back enough it's because of aml regulations yeah all, all these mechanisms they were adopted like like all this complain uh compliance mechanism automated compliance mechanisms at the bank they were adopted pursuant to the uh, financial action task force recommendations right it's a part of this uh, uh, um uh, anti-money laundering re- 
requirements that each bank should have. But it now became uh, like, like this beast on its own. Because uh, how bank compliance works, it's a black box, right? We really, we, we deal at the bank with the front office, right? With some nice lady or a gentleman that's friendly to us, trying to be helpful. But then we receive letters that, uh, you know, uh, there is a decision to close down your accounts. Please take your funds within like this number of days and, uh, and that's it, right? So what happens in that uh, black box of compliance, really, it's for regular customers, it's not known. But there is a mechanism, and right now it's more and more, it's no, not really becoming becoming less human, more AI mechanism, right, that all this data is uh, picked up. And when we say uh, smear uh, campaign, it's not necessarily some kind of negative press in a respectable media, right, that's something that where investigative journalists uh, like, like discovered some corruption scandal. No, it's very often, like in our cases, and some absolutely obscure websites that exist only to spread this propaganda, it's done in various odd languages, languages that, like, Luda was attacking 27 languages. Like, what 27 languages? <laughs> and they know, not languages, uh, languages <laughs> yeah, of the member states. It's like some, in Hindu, why she's attacking India, Hindu? Like, what yes. is the, yeah, what, what is the apparent interest, like, or, like, there was a newspaper in Pakistan, in some, some website in Pakistan, in Urdu. Why? Why, why these people, like, who read, read in Urdu needs to know about some Ludmila Kozlovska, they won't be able to pronounce her name, right? This is done only to be picked up. So this is like a situation, right? It's something the idea is like, like, uh, you know, you throw mud, something will stick. And this is what happens. Something will stick, definitely. It will get picked up. And then, uh, all this negative press. So the bank is, uh, has this dilemma. Should they retranslate and read it and analyze and ask a client questions? What it means? How are you going to address these allegations? Are they really baseless or there, there is something into that? It's going to be too expensive. It's easier for them just to kick out the client like that. And unfortunately, this is, we are saying that it happened to us. Some people say, oh, we are rare examples, etc. But this is happening more and more in this. We see how it's happening with the public figures, people that are attacked by mainstream media and for their political views, right? And we should not look at what their political views, whether it's Kanye West or Nigel Farrell, we don't care, right, about the views. We care about this mechanism. Why some bank decides whether this person is worthy as a client on the basis of the political views of that person? This is an absolutely ridiculous mechanism, but you have to look at that kind of wider. This is a real mechanism for um, censorship, political censorship. So it's already exists in the West. And if we just don't say anything, it's going to work more and more. And later, when everything is going to be automated, then we won't be able to find who is doing what and like whether it's bank or somebody else because this all this compliance is going to be outsourced elsewhere in somewhere on the cloud. <laughs> and, and that's it. And so some mechanism going to decide who's going to live and who's going to die. This is quite dangerous trend. And uh, one other thing um, around, uh, I guess there's also stuff around the travel rule and um, some of these other aspects that are coming as well. So that will also make 
compliance more difficult and it, it'll also become maybe a little bit harder to actually self-custody your Bitcoin. So obviously, most Bitcoiners we, we care about, not your keys, not your coins. Um, so if you could spell out for us, what is the threat there? Exactly. I mean, you actually pointed out very, very well. I mean, what's happened with us and why we care about Bitcoin, we call it Bitcoin, it's human rights. Now, when we see that financial institutions use as a weapon against civil society, against opposition, Bitcoin is a human right. And when we see that uh, all crypto asset services providers going to be operating just in the way how traditional financial institutions, we understand that crypto asset services providers, unfortunately, are going to be the same weapon for regimes just as uh, traditional banks. And that's why, of course, we defend uh, everything around self-hosted wallets, peer-to-peer transactions, but not only. For us, it's also important to defend CoinJoin and also mixers because this is something which should protect our privacy. If regimes know and can identify with their very sophisticated tools, everyone on blockchain, and stay this information forever, all of us expose as activists. So we need to have privacy tools to be able to protect. We don't go outside and just expose how much money we have in our pockets. The same should be with our self-positive wallets. We should have just like general tools to protect our privacy and uh, our security even. So this is a basic right. And again, if we don't explain, of course, unfortunately, by bureaucrats who perceive everything with the easy approach, we need to overregulate everything just because we need to escape all criminals. And then of the day, who is using uh, the biggest financial institutions in third authoritarian countries? Dictators. Who support organized criminal groups? Dictators. So we need to look what real instruments trans- transacting with the billions of dollars and other currencies used by organized criminals groups and how to deal with it. Not just blaming and making a scapegoat uh, actually Bitcoin, which the only complicated, I have to say very complicated, but the only one human rights tool for activists right now because we don't have other instruments. That's it. Okay, so look, we're getting close to time, but uh, let's summarize a few of the key concerns. So as we've spoken about, I guess there's two main categories here. You've got the kind of the proof of work attacks and then the, the attacks on self-custody and uh, you know privacy and security uh, concerns. And so we are looking for people who have um, useful stories in terms of um, proof of work mining or uh, on the financial exclusion side um, of, uh, you know, human rights stories. And uh, I think there's also a public battle, right? It's like a social and cultural battle, right? We can't let there be this perception of, oh, Bitcoin's only for criminals and drug money kind of thing. No, actually, it's a, it's a good thing. It is a normal thing to want to save with Bitcoin and to use Bitcoin. And whether if you want to use Bitcoin, um, you know, in, you know, without, uh, without third parties, if you want to be out of self custody, it's an important thing. So I think those are some of the angles that, you know, if you're a listener of the show, make sure you share this out, especially with other EU Bitcoiners, um, because it does impact you. So, uh, any closing thoughts there, uh, from your side? And uh, yeah, just, I guess, finish up with any thoughts on, you know, the ask from listeners. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and especially, you know, in the area of, an, um, of de-risking, because it's very hard to, we, we actually, uh, know a lot of people that, uh, had their bank accounts closed and lost access to the financial services. And when we say de-risk, it basically means people lose their bank accounts, they can have problems obtaining insurance, mortgage, uh, like, like you name, right? It's all financial systems. Um, so we're looking for people like that who are willing to give uh, testimonies because there is a certain stigma attached. Nobody, when uh, when people encounter the risk and they don't want to speak about it because it's kind of shameful. I'm not a criminal why I got kicked out by my bank. But there can be a number of reasons and you, you probably don't even know about them. You have to raise these questions. You should be open about it. This is one uh, one aspect, right? We definitely, as we uh, spoke already, we need more miners, especially those who uh, use renewables. Uh, that that's uh, for us uh, kind of key people because we cannot address any technical issues on our own. We are looking. We have expertise from a different angle. And, uh, and then I just want to say that, uh, you know, on behalf of both of us, we, it's human, some, like Luda said that Bitcoin is a human right. And, you know, you see, hear a lot in the Bitcoin community that Bitcoin is freedom, right? But we are human rights defenders. We know that both freedom and human rights, they should be defended. And you have to fight for human rights and for freedom because it's very easy to lose both. And this is the same with Bitcoin. You have to fight for this privilege to use this instrument. Yes. So, so join the okay, fight well, great. with us. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Join the fight, guys. Okay. Great. Well, I'll. Uh, well, thank you both for joining. As I said, links are in the show notes. And uh, Luda and Bota, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Stefan. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us.